Hello and welcome to What Monkeys Do. My name is Morten Kamp-Andersen and this is a podcast about what it takes to make a change and make it stick. This podcast is about change and today we'll talk about how to use an evidence-based approach to make our decisions. Because before we make a change, before we make any change, you first have to decide what to change and importantly, how to change. And the how is important. Let me take an example. Let's say that you suffer from a mild depression. So on a scale from minus 10 to plus 10, you are, let's say, a minus 2 or minus 3. Now, there are many things that you can potentially do. You can go to therapy, and there are many therapeutic directions, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychoanalysis, emotional therapy, relational therapy, ACT, and tens of others of therapy directions. You can also take medicine, or you can force yourself to be socially active, you know, meet people you know, or you can read a self-help book and follow the instructions in that one, or you can do exercise. There are many things you can do. And because we're complex humans, there is not one recipe for what is certain to work. But a few of those that I just mentioned are more likely to work for you than the others. We simply have evidence which suggests some things will work better for you if you have a mild depression and some things that does not work. And that is also the case with changes at work. Maybe people do not have a high level of job satisfaction in the team that you work in. Is that a problem? Can you do something about it? And if you do want to do something about it, what? What is the most effective way to build satisfaction at work? Well, that's actually also something we know something about. And when we look at the evidence, we often find that we are basing many of our decisions on myth or incorrect facts, so to speak. So the interesting thing is, how can we make better decisions using the evidence which we have at hand? My guest today is a front person in the evidence-based practice movement. He is a professor in organizational psychology at Queen Mary University in London, and he's also the founder and scientific director of the Center for Evidence-Based Management. Welcome to you, Rob Brenner. Thank you very much, Morton. Thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So in this episode, we'll talk about how to make better decisions using evidence-based practice. And you've spent many years focusing on exactly that. Can you tell us what evidence practice is and how it's different from how we normally make decisions? Yeah, sure. That's a very important question. So I'd say that evidence-based practice is really about making more informed decisions. And actually, both now and I think historically, the whole term evidence-based is a little bit it's either off-putting to people or it make, gives people a very particular impression about what we mean by evidence. And I think it is important to think about what are the differences between what we seem to normally do and an evidence-based practice approach. And I think there are three main differences. The first, I guess, is the broad approach to thinking and acting around evidence. And the traditional definition of medicine is conscientious, explicit, and judicious. So conscientious means you make a lot of effort around gathering evidence. Explicit means you share it, you say what evidence and information and data you're using. Judicious is judging the quality of that information. So it's almost like a whole general approach. So for example, if you take the judicious bit, an important part of evidence-based practice is not that you use all the evidence, you use the best available evidence on the basis that a lot of information data we've got is very unreliable. 
we probably shouldn't even really look at it, but without looking at it, we can't start to judge its quality. So the first thing is this general, conscientious, explicit, and judicious approach. I would say the second main difference is the use of multiple sources of data. So, for example, in HR and organizations and other contexts, there's a lot of emphasis on data analytics. Uh, but typically, that, that's only actually using one source of data, which is often organizational data or data from employees. And that's fine. But the idea of using multiple sources is for two reasons. I think one is this idea of triangulation. You cross-check and you compare, which is pretty important. The second reason for doing it is to contextualize data. So, for example, you mentioned your introduction around depression. You might look at the scientific evidence around, for example, treating mild depression. But actually, you need to know a lot about the person, the individual, the situation, other things about them before you can say, does this scientific evidence apply to this person? So it's exactly the same in organizations. Does the scientific evidence, for example, about job satisfaction, again, you mentioned there's quite a lot of that, does it apply in this situation to these people, to this organization right now? It may do, it may not. But without looking across multiple sources, you just don't know. So I think it's so multiple sources is to contextualize and to cross-check and triangulate. I think the third main difference is taking a structured and stepped approach. So of course, everybody always uses evidence and information and data in their decision making. You can't make a decision without doing it, but typically it seems people don't follow a structured process. So they will jump in, for example, to a solution and then try and justify the solution or they'll dig around and not really be too clear about what the problem is, but want to act anyway. So the point about having structure is to help us stick to a process for making a more informed decision, because there seems to be, it seems to be the case, it's really difficult for people to use evidence and use data and use information, not because it's, I don't think it's because it's technically difficult. You don't have to be a geek or a brainiac. It's because many, many things get in the way, which I think we're, we're going to come on to later. Mm. Three main differences. We always use evidence, but it's this approach, conscientious, explicit, and judicious. It's about multiple sources to triangulate and cross-check. It's also taking a structured approach, which, as mentioned, helps us stick on track, but also, in a sense, forces us to think about the problem or opportunity first before we go into solution mode. In a way, they sound like simple differences, but in another way, they're quite important differences. If I look at sort of the history of evidence-based approach, it, it, it originates from medicine. I think it was back in the late 80s or early 90s. I remember reading and wondering why there is such a big gap between what we know works and what people are applying. And I remember as I studied psychology, I was struck by that same gap that in psychology, we also have some evidence about, you know, which directions to look at and which not to look at, and then what is being applied. And in your writing, you have also shown how that is true for management and leadership and HR and management consultants, etc. Why do you think there is such a big gap? Is that a resistance towards looking at is, is towards looking at evidence? Is it just you know we do it how we normally do it, or what is the explanation? That's a great question. And in my experience of thinking about this for a long time, it's extremely complicated. There's many things going on, but if you wanted to pick one or two reasons why evidence isn't better used. I think at the moment, at least my current thinking today or this morning, is that it's because practitioners, including me as an academic, are incentivized not necessarily to tackle the most important problems, opportunities, and we're incentivized to not necessarily do what's most effective. Crudely speaking, most of us are incentivized to do stuff, whether you're a surgeon, a police officer, 
an academic, a researcher, a consultant, your incentives are to do stuff because that's what will get you rewards and recognitions. And if you don't do stuff, you may well get punished for it as well. So that's the issue. So if people can't see a reason to use evidence and to take more informed decisions, it's really simple. They won't do it. They don't see any possible benefit. So we are more incentivized to do something rather than do nothing. And we're more incentivized to do something rather than do the right thing. And because doing the right thing probably involves more work or a lead time, or we may not even know whether it is going to be right. Therefore, doing things is actually what we're just going to do. Yeah. And also, because if you think about many, and again, you know, in your context of change, it's particularly true, but in many organization interventions in HR and elsewhere, as you know, they're typically not, not evaluated. Hmm. So not only am I paid to do stuff, to do it fast, to get things done, actually it doesn't matter unless it, unless it's a disaster and very few things are a complete disaster. I'll get away with it in the sense of it just doesn't matter. Here's a new training program. Here's a high talent management program, whatever it is. Let's just roll it out, bring it in, do the stuff. People will be kind of happy. And if they're not, that's okay. We'll do something else in two years time. It's, pot it's tempting sometimes to blame individual decision makers and managers, but increasingly, I think it's a contextual issue. And of course, that makes it, as it were, a wicked problem. It's quite hard to tackle. Yes. Interestingly enough, there's actually more and more studies being made, but also more and more studies being made to and, and shown to the general public. So if I just look at my Facebook feed, I will see on newspaper, I'll see many headlines like study shows that coffee is good for your weight loss or study shows that you're talking to your mother can prolong your life or study shows that having children makes you unhappy or things like that. And then there'll be a link to some study. Most of those studies are actually not very good, to be quite frank. You, it's very hard to read behind them, but if you can, it's based on a very little population and, and poor quality. But on the other hand, there are more sort of studies that people are, can see now. And that's also why I suppose why having multiple sources is very important, because otherwise you can always find research to support your way of thinking, so to speak. Yeah, multiple sources. And as you imply, critical appraisal, which means judging the quality of it. And this obviously huge paradox. It's a kind of signal and noise problem. Uh, at the moment, probably most organizational decision makers and other decision makers have access to more information than probably ever. But it doesn't, I don't think it means they're making better informed decisions. Uh, and I think, again, as you know, on things like Facebook or LinkedIn or lots of sources, that the most readily available information, in my experience, is typically the worst quality. Mm. Have this odd sort of paradox of being more and more and more news, data, information, studies, which, as you say, often are quite poor quality, and actually wading through that to get to the signal behind it is actually quite effortful, which is exactly why, for example, in medicine, there's been a huge institutional effort globally for decades now in the context, in the case particularly of scientific evidence, to try and summarize it, to try and do systematic reviews. So people aren't bombarded with one study here, one study there. Can we have an overview as of now of the best available evidence and what generally it seems to be telling us? There's been a lot of focus on our biases. Daniel Kahneman's work, of course, have been very influential in that sense. I wonder if evidence-based approaches is a way to overcome some of those influences of bias? I think it is a way. And I think in that sense, I think you can never overcome bias. I noticed uh, on LinkedIn and elsewhere, people talking about in the context of diversity and inclusion, the idea of removing bias or crushing bias. 
And of course, anyone with even a basic psychology education knows you can't remove bias. But as you said, maybe there's ways of trying to reduce it, control it. And I think the evidence-based practice approach is one potential way of doing it. Now, of course, politics and power is always there. It's always with it. You can't ignore it. But at least if you're taking this idea of a conscientious, explicit and judicious approach, if you're following steps, if you're looking across multiple sources, if you're involving groups in decision-making, it seems to me all those steps make it more likely you address some of the biases that Kahneman and others have been writing about, again, for decades and decades, such as confirmation bias. So in a context of an evidence-based practice decision, one of the things you train people to do is to be aware of some of these biases. So if people are going around searching for evidence that already confirms their existing beliefs, the idea is that everyone would, would see that and be aware of it. And of course, there's the point that often other people, and this is where I think the social element or the shared cognition element of evidence-based practice is important. Other people can see our biases probably much better than we can. So if I, Morton, was presenting information to you about, oh, this is why I want to do this organizational change. I've just come across this thing. It's really cool. You know, Microsoft do it, Google do it, whatever, whatever. And you would say, hold on a minute, Rob. I can see you love this idea, but come on, let's think about what's behind it. So the social element of it, the shared decision-making element of it is also, I think, another way in which it helps deal to some extent with some of these biases, yeah. I think that's actually really, really important because also, as you mentioned, you know your your, your three your three elements of what is evidence based approach. One of them is to to make it contextual, and contextual can also be a way to say, well, this study doesn't apply here because of things, and then you make excuses for why you want to use an, a particular intervention, so to speak. That's right, and that's almost the opposite problem. People, the older every organization is, is so special and unique; nothing anyone else does can possibly work here. And again, there's a real paradox there, because on the one hand, organizations do say that. On the other hand, organizations will also leap onto ideas. For example, you say that Google do. There's nothing to do with their organization. People don't like something, they'll say, well, it just won't work here. If people do like something, they'll ignore the fact they're nothing whatsoever like Google. So why would that work for you? So you get these two, again, it's just another way, I suppose, of, of either doing something you want or not doing something you don't want by drawing in not a very effective way on different sources of evidence and information. Evidence-based approach is essentially trying to take the best available knowledge that we have in order to make better decisions. In order to get that, we, we basically have to change the way we approach this. So we basically have to make our decision process explicit. We also have to judge it much better. We have to look at multiple sources and we have to use a structured approach. And if we apply this evidence-based practice, then our decision-making and ultimately our outcomes will be much better. Exactly. As you said right at the beginning with your depression examples, it's not about having a solution. And this is something that drives me and I'm sure others a bit crazy when it comes to a lot of management practice. It's both marketed as, and I think sometimes thought of as an answer. The whole point about evidence-based practice, it's not about having an answer. We're not dealing with an equation. We're not dealing with a maths problem. We're dealing with usually quite a complicated situation, and there's many things we can do. And what we're looking to do is do the thing that is most likely to work. And it may turn out three things are equally most likely to work, and that's fine. So we're not looking for a single answer. We're looking at, in terms of a probability, a bit more likely course of action leading to the outcome we want. Great. So I'm really interested in how to use evidence-based 
practice in, in real life. So let's use an example. A team in an organization is not performing well. They say themselves that the team dynamics are not very good. People are not very engaged. They don't work well together. There may be some that don't even like each other that much. So they call HR to make an intervention, make the team work well again, so to speak. How can the HR person use the evidence-based approach in such a such a situation? Sure. So I think there's a couple of things. I think the first thing is that it's about multiple sources. And we haven't yet said what those sources are. So we've talked about scientific literature a bit, but of course, we talked about organizational data a bit, but there are only two of four ideal of four sources we've used. We'd also talk to stakeholders. So in the context of your team example, it would of course be the team members, but it may also be the team's clients and customers. It may also be other teams. It may also be the team's manager or team leader. That's the third source, stakeholders. And the fourth is practitioners' own expertise. So again, an example you've given, that will be the expertise of the HR practitioner or the HR team in dealing with these kinds of issues. So the first thing is the multiple sources. The second thing is, is really, of course, trying to understand what the problem or opportunity is. So everything you've mentioned, people not getting on, people not liking each other, people not feeling engaged. The question is, of course, why is that a problem? So what? You know, that's life, right? People don't like each other. So what? We have to be quite careful about leaping on to what we think is a problem because we've already thought of a solution. So in the case of this example, it may be, oh, what we need is a team level kind of group intervention. Or we're going to give everybody, you know, Belbin's team roles. Or we're going to give them this thing because you've leapt on this thing to be the problem. Now, you know, in and of itself, I think people not getting on, I don't, you know, why is that? So what? Uh, simply not being engaged, sort of so what? It's almost like when presenting this problem, we're almost implying in diagnosing the problem, we already know what the solution is. Yeah, such so to increase or, or help people not, not, not be in conflict anymore. And just as an example of team conflict, um, you know, as you know, there is a sense which team conflict is not actually a bad thing. So if you remove team conflict, is that good and good for what? So very often, I think, in this initial, these initial problems that are presented, what, what isn't done so much is asking, why is this a problem? And is there actually a more fundamental problem or set of problems or indeed opportunities there that we haven't really discussed yet? Because we're dealing with quite a surface level of people saying, oh, I don't like things or not engaged. So I think as well as multiple sources, the first thing is to spend quite a lot of time saying, what is the issue? What is the problem? What is the opportunity? And it's interesting that when we do training with this, even if it's only a day or half a day, with a particular organization, we quite often say, let's just spend, say, the morning or the first hour just thinking about what is the problem, what are the opportunity. And what nearly always happens <laughs> is within you know minutes, uh, within 10 minutes, five minutes, people are right onto the solution. And, and I think, again, going back to your question about why is this difficult, I think one of the reasons it's difficult is because people quite enjoy talking about solutions. They love chatting about you know what they can do, should we do this, should we do that, how can we make it happen? Because in a sense, there's two reasons. One, it's cognitively easier. It's not so much hard work. And secondly, it's less likely to lead to conflict, which people typically want, want to avoid. So spending time thinking about what is the problem or issue or opportunity, you know, if there's one thing, people often say, what's the one thing you could do? I say that's the one thing you can do. Mm. If you want to be evidence-based, spend more time on that. And of course, that drives some people nuts because they're thinking, but I need to do something. I want to do something. Stop making me think about the issue. Let's just do something. And of course, you can, you can. But the quicker you do it, the more you do it without understanding the situation, the less likely it is you found a problem or issue. 
and therefore the less likely it is going to work. So it's a kind of trade-off, almost like a speed accuracy trade-off, a classic psychological trade-off. So I think, back to your example, I think I've spent a lot of time looking across those four areas, but also really trying to understand sort of what the problems or issues are first, before you do anything and think about a solution. And one of the things that often arise when you look at the problem is that you think, is this really a big problem? So for instance, with lack of engagement, there is always a feeling that lack of engagement will lead to people leaving the organization or lower productivity. But when we look at the evidence, sure, there is a positive correlation there, but it's actually a lot lower than people think it is. Yes. And it's like, again, the example we gave with the job satisfaction, yeah, old-fashioned engagement, if you like, job satisfaction performance link or job satisfaction turnover link it's not that there is no link it's that my understanding broadly speaking the, the kind of quite large body of evidence is a link isn't necessarily strong and you know in some cases it might be quite small so if the problem is performance why would you start with job satisfaction as your solution because it appears isn't that strongly linked and again of course interesting going back to those four sources it may be that in your organization but the particular employees you're talking about, maybe there is a really strong link. Again, that's why it's important to look at your organizational data as well as the scientific evidence, because you get that sort of sense of triangulation and contextualization. Many people think that evidence-based approach is really about finding research from academia and so on. But I think you highlighting that there are actually four sources that are equally important. So one is the research, but the other one is speaking with the stakeholders uh, at play. Also, your own experience and, and what works in your organization is really important. And then organizational data. And I guess people struggle a little bit finding good research. We'll talk a little bit about that. But also many organizations have really bad data. I mean, when you try to find out what is the link between engagement and productivity for this team, nobody knows. Exactly. And that to me is an another, if you needed another reason for trying to do some like evidence-based practice, one reason is that it almost accidentally, or as a side effect, acts as a sort of a quality audit of your data. Because you say, if you go searching for information, you go, well, it isn't here, or we do have it, or it's impossible to get hold of, or the data seem very unreliable. Why are we measuring it like this? That's pretty important because it tells you it's almost as an organizational development intervention. If you want to make more informed decisions, rather than rushing off and implementing the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, you actually spend some effort and time getting good quality, relevant information to decision makers. Because if you don't do that, you'll never be able to be particularly evidence-based because you just don't have access to it. Yes. Now, one of the important sources you mentioned is the scientific knowledge. How do non-academic people get access to that? How can we navigate in that knowledge? Do you have any advice for people in, in HR or, or personally? Yeah, I do. So, so quick and dirty tips are to go on something like Google Scholar. Uh, and because open access is improving all the time, it's getting a bit easier. But to go on Google Scholar, just start looking around. Type in the concepts, the words you're interested in. So I mentioned something, I think I mentioned high-performance individuals or talent management or some aspect of talent management. Go onto Google Scholar, type in some a couple of words, a couple of terms, and then search for things like systematic reviews or reviews or meta-analyses. Um, and depending on the topic, try and restrict it to maybe the last 10 years and just start to dig around and see what's there. Now, again, I think for HR practitioners or managers, they are quite used to having extremely pre-digested, as it were. Mm. Also, there's sometimes not very good evidence. I guess they're quite used to, but where's the where's the is it where's the answer? Where's the where's the sort of heart of this? 
And of course, it's difficult with academic literature to do that. So I would say it's also important to, to, to manage people's expectations and say you're pretty unlikely to go into Google Scholar, type in the thing and get the answer you're looking for because, well, for, for all kinds of reasons. So, but that's okay. Uh, and again, in terms of an OD development, I'd also say for any manager, HR practitioner, this is almost like a personal professional development thing. Start trying it. You know, go into Google Scholar, the decision you're making next week, just dig out three or four things. Don't go crazy. Just try it, read them. They probably won't be very nice to read. They're probably a bit difficult to read. That's okay. Have a go, read them. And again, it's the whole point. You're more likely to make a better informed decision if you use at least some evidence rather than none or some reasonable quality evidence rather than all quality evidence. So it is actually more available now. It used to be Reed Elsevier and a couple of other publications that owned it all. Now it's more open source, which is fantastic. But as you say, it is still a little bit hard to get hold of. And the meta studies are really the ones to focus on because they take the most everything else and digest and say, this is what we know. Exactly. Again, I think sometimes people, when they read this stuff, they either get angry with academics, uh, which is fine, or they sort of blame themselves for not being smart enough, which is not fine, because of course they're smart enough. So it's a sort of learning thing, exactly like I would do with the students I teach, saying, the first time you read one of these papers, you'll think, what the hell is this about? The second time, it's a bit better. 10 times, you know, 20 times, it's just practice. And this is the issue, again, about using organizational data. Unless you start doing this stuff, a lot of the barriers are simply because you don't have the skills and knowledge and access to the information. The more you try to do it, the more you'll build that individual and organizational capacity to do it. Yes. Now, HI is, is uh, fairly renowned for using many tools that have no basis in evidence at all, almost, and some that are sort of pseudo-academic. So, for instance, many organizations use a version of MBTI as a way to select or uh, recruit or develop. And I know in academia, there's a lot of reservation about that type of uh, personality test, especially when using in selection. Why do you think that HR continue to use tools which academia show that does not work well? I think it's because they are doing different things and asking different questions. So this is MBTI happens to be something I have, I've had a lot of discussions with practitioners about. Because occasionally I put, I mean, I've given, I haven't completely given up, but I used to put a lot of posts on Twitter and LinkedIn about this and got some really, you know, fast, for me, really fascinating discussions with people about this. So as an academic is asking the question, is MBTI a valid and reliable measure of personality? To which the answer is no, not really. A practitioner is saying, do I feel if I give this to someone and give them feedback on it, what I think it's useful or they think it's useful? Again, talking to some practitioners, they completely accept it's not a valid measure of personality, but they think it's a tool for doing something else. So as long as academics and practitioners are coming to the same instrument, asking the questions are fine, but they're different questions. And indeed, if you look at that second one, the idea that if you give people personality tests, uh, of course, if they're not very valid, that's problematic, but that's a different kind of discussion. But if you give people feedback from personality tests, the question is, yeah, the, the person giving the test may enjoy doing it, of course, because they feel they're helping someone. The person who's receiving it may find it helpful. Fine. But the most important question is, is it in fact the case that by giving people feedback from a personality test, whatever it is, is it actually developmental? And that's a question which, from my understanding, is at least in scientific literature, we don't have an answer. We have huge amounts of practitioner experience, practitioner evidence, a practitioner expertise that says, yes, it does, fine. 
But as I said before, that's just one source of evidence, and we need to look at other sources as well. Mm. Many practitioners in many fields do stuff because it has an immediate impact and people like it and people enjoy it and they enjoy doing it and they will just always do it. It doesn't matter what evidence you show them because they're, they're doing something else. They're doing something they think is valuable and that's fine. But then you have to pin down, you have to drill down to what they, so they think it's valuable, but what do they really think it's doing? And can we find out if it is doing that thing they think it's doing? An analogy might be like, you know, some medical intervention. Yeah, sure. The patient might love it. The, the practitioner like might love it. Great. That's one way of thinking about it. But actually, is it curing? Is it helping? Is it doing what you expect? Which is another kind of question. Yes. And I guess this is where, so of the four sources, you have experience as, as one source and you have scientific research as another. Here, you can actually have a conflict of those sources where my experience is it works uh, when I use this tool on a person they will develop. And we don't really measure before and after. We don't really evaluate, but that is my experience. And scientific research says, well, if, you know, that's not the best measure for measuring a personality trait. Yeah. And I think going back to the idea of experience, it comes back to the issue of also saying, what's the quality of that evidence? So you could say, yes, from my experience, I believe whenever I do this, I see people develop. And then again, I think it's about drilling down, say, okay, so what have you actually observed? How many times you've observed it? Have you kept track? How do you know, you know, if you control for biases in some way, is it possible you got it wrong in some way? Exactly the same question you asked about a body of scientific evidence, because yeah, sure, people can believe it, but the question is, what is that belief based on? Yes. And if what it's based on is, is quite questionable and probably not very reliable, sure, you can still have that belief, but then you need to separate out, I just believe this, and it gets to something like faith from actually, I also have other kinds of data and evidence that, that support that belief. So people believe things we can't really support, it doesn't mean they're wrong or right, it means we can't support them very well. So we have to, again, I think it's knowledge. I have this belief, I like it, but actually that's all I've got. Well, that's most. And in organizations, I guess there are some things that we can measure better than others. So selection, for instance, is a little bit better to, 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 to measure because we can see how many of a cohort is still there after 12 months or after 18 months. And, and I suppose we, we do have some evidence to suggest that semi-structured interviews are not very good. Um, IQ is actually uh, reasonably good and, and so on. So we do have some evidence around selection for instance sure yeah you're right i think some some areas certainly in terms of organizational data and scientific evidence they're just yeah they're slightly more amenable to some kinds of interventions and i think that's okay because again i mean obviously your area is organizational change there's lots of things about that they're just not very amenable to organizational sort of investigations or scientific investigations but i think it's a question of acknowledging that we maybe don't know and that's okay it's but other than pretending this is going to work and we know it will. No, we don't really. We kind of maybe got some clues, some hints, and actually we may not never know, but it's extremely difficult for this question, this area, to actually get data to directly answer that question. As I say, that's okay. You just don't, as it were, pretend that you know and you've got this great body of, of scientific evidence, for example, behind them. So I think what is, I think what is, Really fascinating about this is one that you would probably spend more time on the quality of your questioning and answer the assumptions of your problem questioning. And that will give you a lot of, of value instead of going straight to solution thinking. And then the multiple sources of, of um, 
of data so you can challenge your biases or you can understand you know what other ways of of intervention might there be yeah and the value also i think is, is part as i mentioned if you think about it as a professional or organizational development intervention uh, i think it's also to keep doing it i hear sometimes practitioners say well i tried this once and we didn't get the answer so forget it you think well it's not the point is to keep doing it. and also Probably the point is not to do it for every decision. Just think about big or important ones and do it and try it for those. And again, you know, I think I was less in favor of this some years ago, but I'm, I'm just much more in favor now of saying, try it out. Mm. Do it as best as you can. Reflect on it. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Probably you will start to, say, get the data and information you need, but you'll get better at it. And then it'll, it'll make a lot more sense. Just doing it as a one-off. I don't think you can, like anything, you can't learn very much. So uh, many times we also want to make a change in our personal life. We want to lose weight. We want to reduce our stress level or improve our marriage. I don't know. How can you suggest that we use evidence-based practice in our daily life? Mm. So again, in the last few years, I'm, I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that what decision makers, of course, do is they take the way they make decisions in their personal life into work. Because, of course, we're, we're human, right? It's what, what we do. And I always say, well, that's fine probably for some kinds of personal decisions, but it's not fine if your decisions as a manager in organization may have impact on hundreds or thousands of people and an organization and its success. So the way we make decisions individually and personally, yeah, it's not great all the time, but that's okay because normally the consequences aren't great. But I think to take it into our personal lives is something we we can do. And I think it's part of what I was saying right at the beginning, which is about thinking about what is the problem or opportunity. So you gave the example of weight. I mean, weight is a classic uh, example of thing something people worry about. I guess partly because we're bombarded with images of slimness and so on. And weights associated with all kinds of, certainly in our cultural context, associated with all kinds of not good things on the whole. And of course, sure, yes, and there is other kinds of scientific evidence that suggest that being overweight is not great. Sure. But often we, this manifests itself in maybe anxiety and certain kinds of worries, which then leads to, again, diet's a great example, the kind of quick fix. If I do this thing, I can lose whatever 10 kilos in 10 weeks, whatever, whatever crazy thing it is. And again, I think it's quite some parallels, particularly with the diet industry and the, and the consulting industry, in that there's a lot of things that some consultants sell as quick fixes to complicated problems. And of course, inevitably, they don't work. And so you look for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And I think this is just as, as fad and fashions, I think, in, in business and HR, it's the same fads and fashions in diets. And in the end, for both cases, probably what you need to do to effectively bring about change is pretty much hasn't changed <laughs> maybe some of these new things make some peripheral difference but it probably hasn't changed very much so i think st- starting on what is the problem say around weight and, and the other thing that's very noticeable this example i often like using when i'm teaching and training is an example of kitchen equipment so morton i don't know about your kitchen uh but if i think about my kitchen some of my cupboards in my kitchen there's pieces of equipment there like a juicer or a steamer or a bread maker, whatever it is, that when I bought it, it made a lot of sense. When I bought it, I thought, this juicer, this is going to it's gonna fix some problem. Did I know what the problem is? Not really, but I saw a kind of solution. This is kind of solutioneering. You, you identify 
a problem by the absence of a solution. The problem in my life is I don't have enough juice. The problem in my life is I don't have enough fresh bread in them, whatever it is. Now, it, isn't really, it probably isn't really a problem. So then if we look around you know, our houses, as example, personal decision-making, we can find this stuff that we bought. And in the end, it wasn't for a great reason. We just thought it was cool, it would help, we thought it was fun, or everybody else was doing it. So I think there's quite a lot of lessons there. And for, for me personally, it's a bit depressing looking at things on my shelves and look at your bookcase behind you, Morton, as, as we can see it in the video. You know, often we buy books and they're up there. And are we ever going to read them? And they kind of torment us and tease us and go, ha, 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 never going to read. And again, you know, we buy this stuff because we, we imagine, yeah, we want to read it or we're going to read it. Or, and often it's pretty unrealistic. So I think thinking about how we can use this approach in our private lives, I think, again, it's the same point. I think it's saying what actually, what's the problem or issue or opportunity here? We're really, you know, and spend more time on that. And it's particularly, I think, now with, with kind of online shopping, it was existing anyway, particularly in lockdown. You know, a number of people I know just bought stuff that's completely pointless, uh, and they'll probably end up having to try and resell it or something else. And I think it's it's part of that sense that we feel we can buy stuff to help us. And sure, or sometimes it might. Or we feel we can adopt a diet plan to help us. And sure, sometimes it might. But what's missing from that? There's a lot of action in there. Yes. So I think I think it can apply to individual things, but it's difficult. Where just as we are consumers of products and services as ideas in our personal life, we're consumers of products and services and ideas, I think, in our professional lives as well. And I think, as I say, there's a huge similarity between those two fields. So I think framing the problem really well, but also looking at the problem from many different angles in our personal life is actually a really, really important thing. And I, so for instance, with the, with the weight, as, as you mentioned, so sure, you can see the positive benefits of losing five kilos or something like that. But as you say, there is also a lot of stress uh, related to losing that uh, anxiety, maybe. Also, there's a lot of evidence that that weight loss do not work. So you'll actually embark on something which has a very slim chance of even working. So having all of that knowledge before you formulate the problem and therefore look at the solutions will actually help you decide maybe this is not worth it anyway. Like in organizations where you look at engagement and engagement has fallen a little bit and then you look at, well, the consequences are, is it not actually that much? So does it really matter? Should we really make this big intervention to change that? So I think that's a really, really powerful message that spend some more time on the problem and researching it and getting a lot of data to to understand the problem before you look at a solution. Yeah, and also I think re reframing sometimes those problems, not not in a kind of cheesy positive psychology way, but to reframe some of those problems as opportunities, as in, uh, okay, we're not really clear that this is a problem, this team not getting on, but is there, it, can we detect an opportunity to do something we think is actually going to be a benefit rather than can we do something to avoid a negative, can we do something to enhance a positive, and why is that potentially important? So I think thinking about problems and opportunities may be occurring simultaneously, but thinking what the best way to frame them is also quite important. So the idea with evidence-based practice and approach is that we will make our decisions and our interventions better. And we will do that by having a different approach to how we make decisions we will have we will use multiple sources to understand the problem and therefore also some of the solutions and we'll use a structured open approach 
to making decisions. And if we do that, we can still rely on our gut feeling, our experience. We can we just add in scientific research and knowledge from other stakeholders and and maybe organizational data. All of that will basically mean that we will make better decisions. And yes, it will take longer time. And yes, it probably will complicate something. But the benefit of this should be that we will have you know, better interventions and better decisions made. And there might be a lot of things that we thought we would jump straight to and 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 make a solution around that we will not do anyway. And that's also a benefit. Doing less is actually a big benefit, I think, from this. Yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Um, Rob, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to to speak uh, with me. I think the the evidence based practice is vastly underused and whether whether i look at at medicine or psychology or organizations or even at home i think we can just benefit from just thinking much much smarter about our problems and it doesn't mean we have to read a lot of academic research uh, we may have to pick up one or two articles but it's actually applying a more structured approach to seeking more information and being more critical that's right and i think the key thing to take away from this as well as it's not about as you're saying it's not about making a perfect decision it's about making a more informed decision. And even if it's a little more informed, just a little bit more informed, you're still more likely to get the outcome you want by focusing on getting more, better quality information to both understand the problem and to think about potential interventions. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you very much for our conversation. You're very welcome, Morton. Thank you again for asking me. Thanks. What a great interview. I took three things away from my talk with Rob. One, we can make our decisions better by using an evidence-based approach. Making a decision evidence-based means that we must change our approach to decisions. And we do that in three ways. Firstly, we must make a conscientious, explicit and judicious use of the best available evidence. Conscientious means that we must try hard and make a real effort to gather and use the best evidence. Explicit means that we must describe the evidence on which we're basing our claims. And judicious means to critically appraise the quality of the evidence. And then we must use multiple sources so we can triangulate our data. And finally, we must use a structured approach to our decision making. And if we do that, we'll be able to make better informed decisions. Two, we should spend more time defining our problem. Once we have identified a problem, we often jump straight into solutions. Why? Well, because that feels better and it's more action orientated. But instead, Rob suggests that we spend more time on understanding and perhaps reframing the problem. If we see a decline in job satisfaction, is that really a problem? And why is that a problem? Or if we want to lose weight, perhaps understanding some of the potential costs in trying to lose weight before deciding if that five kilos is worth the effort. And three, it is not about reading a lot of boring research. It's about using several sources. There are four sources that we should look at to make evidence-based decisions. Scientific research, speak with relevant stakeholders, use our own experience, and look for organizational data. And only by looking at all sources of data can we make better informed decisions with better outcomes. Rob's work is important. Running faster, improving our productivity, working better together only makes sense if we make good decisions in the first place. 
Otherwise, we're just climbing faster up the wrong ladder, standing against the wrong wall. Until next time, take care.